Who's buying one? All right, we've already got sales, gentlemen, so let's get that let's get that going. Luke chapter 6, where we're at today, Luke 6. And the children may be dismissed for Children's Church at this time. Uh, I do thank you for your uh, recognizing our anniversary. I was uh, such a privilege yesterday to, to hear a lot of testimonies. Um, we had a lot, we had a room, f- about this many people or more, that came to the little service that people honored, and many, many, many had been led to Christ with my dad, uh, from my dad. And uh, one lady gave testimony. She called late one night, and they talked an hour on the phone, and he led her to Christ over the phone. And she's been serving the Lord now for years. And uh, just to see that impact, the faithfulness that passes down generation, it's, it's worth it, you know. It's worth it to put the time in, to put the effort in, uh, make uh, make you know, to invest in your family and do those things. So I'm grateful for that today. We're working through a series uh, where we look at different friends of Jesus. And today I want to read out of Luke chapter 6 and uh, verse number 14. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes or Simon the Zealot is how we know him, and Judas the brother of James, Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us today as we look at a a little bit of an obscure friend. Help us to learn from him as we go through this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask four questions this morning. I'm going to ask three questions now, and you have to wait till the end so you can't leave early, okay? Uh, to hear the fourth question, but the three questions I'd like to begin with is, does God want to do great things? Second, can God do great things? And the third, who does he use to do it? When we read the Bible, we see an amazing thing. If we stop and consider these questions, we read about great things that have happened, great feats accomplished for God. Indeed, the Bible talks about uh, spiritual giants that we can look at and see uh, men who did great things. We, we read of Noah and Job and Abraham and Moses and Joshua, but there's, there's someone more subtle, I guess, in Scripture, you would say, that I want to look at and highlight today. And there's even a more subtle truth that I want to highlight today, and that is the practice of God to do extraordinary things with ordinary people. In fact, he uses the uh, highly unusual means sometimes to accomplish his purpose. In the Bible, we see whales that obeyed. We see donkeys that talked. Uh, we see this when the sun stood still and when food was multiplied and when the fish all obeyed to jump into a certain net. We see all these different things that God uses to accomplish his purpose. One thing that we can be assured of is this that God is 100% self-sufficient. He does not need you or I to get the job done. Uh, He does not need the enormous talent that you possess. He doesn't need that. He gave it to you to use for Him, but He doesn't need it to accomplish His purpose. Let me relate just a few examples. Out of Joshua chapter 2, you can follow me if you want into these different uh, passages, but in Joshua chapter 2, we're introduced to a woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute. 
not someone that you would think would be used for God. She's walking the streets late one evening, and then she sees something that brought her up short. There's two strangers in town. Due to the business that she's in, she knows most of the men in town and in the city. But here were two men that weren't only strangers to her, but they dressed a little different. And when she spoke to them, she knew for certain they were foreigners. They were not one of uh, the people that she was familiar with. Not only were they foreigners, then she finds out that they were Israelites. The very men, the very people that had filled her people with fear and trembling. They were spies sent out to search her town. Now, they had run into her, and they needed help. They're at her house now. She has a choice to make. She can turn them in, uh, but she something inside of her happens that uh, she decides against that, and she recognized truth when she saw it. She believed not only in the superior power of Israel, but more importantly, she believed in the superior power of their God. Hebrews 11.31 calls Rahab a woman of faith. It was a ridiculous assumption to think that Israel could take Jericho. It was a walled city, completely impenetrable. There's no way, humanly speaking, that they could take that city. Yet she believed not so much in their military might as she believed in their God that they served. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, she's talking to the men, and this is what she says, I know that the Lord God has given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and that the inhabitants in the land faint because of you. And she says in verse 10, For we had heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, and you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the kings of the Amorites. In verse 11, And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. They were terrified of the Israelites. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. She was a woman of faith. This woman of faith believed that God could do the impossible. And now these spies were in her home and the men of the city showed up at her front door demanding that she turn them over. And by the way, as God did with those that came to Lot's door, could He have struck these men with blindness and confused them? Absolutely. But he chose a willing person, a woman, a prostitute nonetheless, to save those spies, and in the end, she saved her family. A short time later, there were some guards standing on the top of this impenetrable wall. There's been great stories told about how this wall was very big. They could run chariots on top of it. It was a very big and powerful city. Uh, and, and these guards are standing there and they're talking. Perhaps they wondered, as they would have in the past, what was the point of guards in the first place? Uh, all in this area, everyone around knew that Jericho could not be taken, this wall that protected it. In fact, a few weeks prior to this evening, out of fear, the surrounding Canaanites had come to this city, and they're now inside the city, uh, fleeing there for their safety. The city now contains several thousand people. The city of Jericho was prepared for a siege. There's a, the main wall and then a large slope outside uh, the wall and then a retaining wall after the slope. It was set so that there was no way anybody could penetrate it. A spring inside the city of Jericho uh, gave water for all the people. There would be plenty of water for them. And according to Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, the harvest had just been taken in. 
In fact, the evacuation, uh, uh, excavation, I'm sorry, in the 1930s found a large, uh, that they had large containers of grain in Jericho. It's believed they could have held out for several years inside the city if Israel did surround them and besiege them. These guards, what are we even doing here? They're in the middle of their normally boring job, but the past few days has given them some entertainment because for a few days now, Israel, uh, who the Bible says has filled the surrounding nations with terror, is doing something not brave, not bold, something really kind of silly. They're walking. They're walking around the city, and that's all they're doing. They're just walking. And it made the chief of security nervous the first couple of days, and he might have uh, put some extra men on guard, but they've been doing this for days now, and they're not doing anything. Nobody's saying anything. Nobody's talking. Uh, trumpets are blowing, and they're just walking around the city. And so there is no flaming arrows. There is no siege craft. There is no catapult in sight. Just walking. Imagine, and this isn't that big of an imagination, but imagine if Brother Corey bullied me. He hasn't, but imagine he did, picking on me, making fun of me, uh, taking my lunch money. You know what bullies do. And so I decided I was going to get even with him. I was really going to get him. And I'm going to go out, I'm going to walk circles around his house. You see what I'm saying? It's silly. doesn't do anything. There's, that's not a threat. And uh, so this is all they were doing. Now it's the seventh day. And they didn't stop with just one time around. They keep walking around the thing. They've walked around the city seven times. They've been silent this whole time. All the times they've walked around the city. All the time the trumpets have been blowing, but the people have been quiet. But now it looks like they're setting up to make some noise and something is about to happen. Are they going to fight? Are they going to finally uh, bring the fight to this uh, impenetrable city? No, they're not. Looks like they're having a concert. Trumpets are blowing. They're starting to shout now like a cry of victory, except no one's fighting. This makes absolutely no sense. These people are deluded, and then that's the last they thought because they felt the, this is some speculation, but they felt the walls trembling underneath them, and that's the last thing that those guards remembered. Joshua chapter 6 verse 20 tells us that the walls fell flat to the earth. Now, you don't really believe that the vibration from the trumpets and the vibration from the people's voices and the decibels were enough to shake this wall down? No. Did God need them? No. Could he have done it himself? He really did. But uh, it's interesting how he used people. Uh, the, he didn't need the trumpets. He could have just, and the walls would have fell flat, Okay. But he used willing people. Could God have delivered the city to Joshua on day number one? Yes, absolutely he could have. But six days of marching takes some discipline. And it takes some faith to walk around and stay silent and wait on God. And that takes patience as well. And faith and patience go together. And they saw a great victory because they let God use them in a weird way, really. But they did what God said. The second example I'd like to see is as David found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're very familiar with this story. There's a big giant walking up and down the valley and uh, he's uh, cursing God and God's people. It's not uncommon in those days, in the days of hand-to-hand combat for each side uh, or each army to pick a champion and let those two duke it out because that way it saves a lot of lives 
and uh, the, the risks only one life. So one of these sides picked a super soldier. He's a big guy. He's a giant. He's an elite fighter. But for 40 days, he's been walking up and down trying to issue a challenge to bring somebody, and nobody has uh, accepted his challenge to fight. Isn't this Israel, whom everyone fears? Don't they worship a God who gets them out of all kinds of tight scrapes? Where is he now? And so this giant thundered out these cursings, and he cursed God, uh, the Israelites' God, and he cursed the Israelites, and uh, he was just a vile, vile human being. And then one day, after a month and a half, uh, as he's watching these soldiers, they're all shaking in their boots, they're all afraid, and around uh, there's a, the big tent in the middle where Saul is in there, and there's, of course, his secret service is protecting him there. Uh, and then out of that tent on day number whatever, about a month and a half in, out of that tent comes a youth walking out toward the giant. He's not much more than a boy. Uh, about 15 years old. It angers the giant. He is a well-known, well-trained, famous fighter. He is an elite soldier. And it angers him that here they don't even respect him enough. It's like a joke that's outrageous. They send out a boy to face him. Who did they think he was? Did they think he was some kind of mongrel dog to send out a boy with a stick? In fact, that's exactly what he said in verse 43. Am I a dog? that thou comest to me with staves, and the Philistine cursed David. He's a warrior. All his family uh, is war are warriors. He has four brothers that are all warriors, and they're all giants, by the way. He has a cousin that has six fingers on his hands, uh, each of his hands, and six toes in each of his foot. They don't have the common decency to send their best. They send out a boy. He let him know, too. He sent out a volley of curses. He's screaming and shouting his frustration. But wait, here's the boy. He's shouting something now. And he's, he's claiming that he's going to be victorious. Something about his God. The boy is claiming not only is he going to battle the super uh, giant fighter, this elite warrior, he claims he'll win. Listen to the boy's shouts in verse 46. This day will the Lord deliver you into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines into the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. It almost makes the giant laugh to hear such nonsense from a kid, from a just a kid. Now the boy is swinging something. That looks silly. And the last thing the giant feels is a sharp pain in the center of his forehead as he falls to the earth. On July 25th, 1911, Bobby Leach went over Niagara Falls in a barrel. He was the second person, not the one not second to try it, but the second one to survive it. He only broke a couple of bones. And uh, in 1926, Mr. Leach uh, was on a publicity tour because that's what he did after that. Uh, he, he started traveling the world and talking about he went over Niagara Falls, a big feat of the day. And so he was on a publicity tour in 1926, and he slipped on an orange peel. He injured his leg, it became infected, and eventually infested with gangrene. They amputated the leg, and a few days later, from complications, he died from it. Went over Niagara Falls in a barrel and survived it, slips on an orange peel, and dies. My point is this. 
Could God have had Goliath slip on an orange peel and fall to his death? Absolutely. Does God want to do great things? Yes, I believe he does. Can God do great things? Yes, I believe he can. And the third question, who does he use to do it? And here, God used the first one who stood after 40 days of nobody volunteering. The first one, uh, I'll do it. I'll go. I'm willing. I'll go do what you need me to do, God. I'll shut that giant's mouth for him. I'll be victorious for you. And who was it? Uh, one of the secret service? Was it one of the, uh, the uh, a captain, a general? No, it was just a boy who showed up on the scene. But he said, I'm willing to be used by you, God. I'm, I'll, I'll go. All I got is a slingshot, but I'll take my slingshot and go out there because a slingshot in God is worth all the armor in the world. Amen? Number three, Gideon, Judges chapter 8. In Judges chapter 8, we see the Midianites who are descendants of Midian, which is the son of Abraham with his concubine Keturah. In Genesis chapter 25, Abraham had sent all his concubines and their children away from Isaac. They were bothering Isaac, so he sent them away from his beloved son Isaac and sent them to the east, to the far country. The Midianites were among these that he sent away. By the way, if you study the history of Israel, you'll find something that's true in our lives as well. Many of the Israelites' um, enemies, the ones that caused them all kinds of trouble, were really of their own doing. I mean, you have you had Lot's daughter, Lot's sins with his daughters, both led to nations that gave them all kinds of trouble. And so uh, it was not, it, for one example, it wasn't God's idea for Abraham to have a child with Sarah's, um, it was Sarah's servant, and the result was Ishmael, and they're still fighting today, these many thousand years later. Here, Abraham had a concubine, not in God's plan, but it resulted in bitter enemies. And often we do the same things. Our mistakes are, as, are much trouble for us down the road. It's why the, the best thing we can do is to honor and obey God every step of the way. The Midianites were nomads. They traveled along trade routes and they had all their hands in all sorts of things. They had caravan trading. They did crime. They had, uh, were involved in the slavery. Uh, they had, they were roadside bandits. Just, all in all, not good people. It was in one of these trade routes, if you remember, they bought Joseph from his brothers and they sold him to Potiphar when they got to Egypt. In Judges chapter 8, we find that for seven years, the people of Midian were oppressing Israel and a man named Gideon, after God called him, rounded up uh, all the men that he could find, but it wasn't good news because in all that, all the people he was able to collect to go to battle was 32,000 men. And Judges 8.10 tells us that Midian had a 135,000 fighters. Now, it's a well-known fact in our circle that I'm not a big fan of math. Sorry, Brother Howard, just not a fan of math. But even, even a math dunce can say that's not good. If you have 32,000, they have 135. Because even a homeschooler knows 135,000 is a bigger number than 32,000. That's something I learned. It took a long time, but I learned that, okay? Uh, so each Israelite had to take out roughly four Midianite soldiers for them to be successful. And that's not ideal. And Gideon has reason to be a little anxious about this. And imagine his relief then when the Lord came to him and said, Gideon, not happy with the number of soldiers you have. Gideon says, yes, I know. I don't have near enough. God says, you have too many. I need you to cut it down. Whew, what? Who ever heard 
of going to battle when you're outnumbered and sending a bunch of yours home. And that's what God really wanted him to do. To Gideon and to us, this is absurd. That for God to bring victory to Israel, he makes them even weaker. That makes no sense to us. And it brings, begs the question, why does God allow times of weaknesses in our lives? Why does he sometimes bring overwhelming odds into our life? There's a reason there, because the weaker you get, the stronger God is in you. Oh, there's so much truth that Paul learned this with his thorn in the flesh. There's a reason for this. And does, and again, I ask the question, does God want to do great things? I believe absolutely yes. And just because trouble comes into your life does not mean that that fact changes. Helen Keller said, a happy life consists not in the absence of, but in the mastery of hardships. So Gideon gathered his army. Those that were too fearful to fight, <laughs> I don't think any army has done this since. If you're afraid, you can go. We'll give you an honorable discharge if you're afraid. So they did, a whole bunch of them. Two-thirds of them, 22,000 soldiers said, Thanks, but I'm out of here. Four to one odds. That's too bad for me. I'm gone. And so they left. They went home. There was only 10,000 soldiers left. But God was not done. He still thought, too many men, too many men. And so uh, they again got, you know, the story how they went to uh, the brook and, and uh, 9,700 men put their face down into the water and basically sucked the water up to get their drink. And, and 300 of them lifted their the water up to their mouth and drank that way. And God says, that's who I want. Send the rest of them home. You sure you can't just swap that? No, no. I want the, I want that 300, send the 9,700 home. So now he's got 300 people left. That's 300 Israelites versus 135,000 Midianites. That's 450 to 1 odds. I'll take 4 to 1 now, Amen. Compared to that, well, they were outnumbered apart from the small fact that God's on their side. But they're not, you know, they're outnumbered. We know that they're outnumbered. It's late now, about mid midnight in the Midianite camp. Most are asleep in their tents and their blankets there, and some are still up. Some men, as you would have with uh, army camps, some men are still talking around the campfires and others are starting to turn in. There's conversations like the, the news flying around that this guy Gideon thinks he's going to fight us, but most of his army went home. It's quite a funny story. Now he's just got a couple of different, uh, these few people with him. But suddenly from a distance, they hear a terrifying sound, the blowing of battle trumpets. There were hundreds of them. Imagine how many soldiers there would be if there's hundreds of trumpets blowing. And then the next moment, there's an explosion of lights out of nowhere. There was no light, and all of a sudden there is light. Hundreds of them, of torches flaming and came into thin air, basically. And then uh, what happens next was enough to chill the blood of all those that were listening there. Hundreds of voices pierced through the night with a mighty war cry, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. It's a terrifying, terrifying moment. The Midianites' hearts, the Bible says, were filled with terror. There had to be thousands upon thousands of people attacking them. The truth is there was only 300 guys. They had no weapons. They just had, they had a trumpet, a pitcher, and a torch. 
That was their weapons. That's all they had. How would you like to go to war? And here's your weapons, guys. A trumpet and a pitcher uh, and a lamp. They, they, the Bible said weren't holding weapons. Joshua 7, or sorry, Judges 7.20 says they were holding the lamps in their left hands, the trumpets in their right hands. And again, not the smartest guy in the world, but I think that uses up all your hands, right? You got a left hand and you got a right hand. And, that, and those that's what it was holding. They weren't holding weapons. The trumpet that we see there is better known to us today as a chauffeur. It's uh, generally made of ram's horn. It is what they use to make an announcement or to uh, herald an occasion. The pitcher was a jug used for drawing water. The original word is cad. It means large jar. It was probably made of clay, so easily broken. The lamps were a flaming wooden torch of some kind that was covered with a pitchy substance, and it would burn, but they, uh, Gideon had them cover those with the lamp until just the right moment. At the signal, they were to blow the trumpet, smash the lamp, and yell out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. No weapons, just 300 people with no chance of victory. That's what the Midianites actually saw. Now, if the Midianites would have had enough sense to just hold still and let the enemy reveal themselves, the only danger that really would have befell them is maybe getting hurt from laughing too hard because of these 300 that were going to take them on with really no weapons. Matter of fact, Gideon and his men didn't even attack. They just stood there with their torch, with their trumpet, and the camp of 132,000 soldiers, absolute pandemonium broke out. Uh, soon the dying were all about and others were running for their lives. And the crazy thing happened, all, this all happened before the Israelites ever showed up. But the first time that I know of that an army was defeated when the enemy hadn't even gotten there yet. <laughs> the Midianites needed to be defeated. Question number two, can God do it? Yes, absolutely he can do it. He could have caused an earthquake. This happened in other times, by the way. Earthquakes, hailstorms, fire from heaven. He could have used any of those type of things. Uh, but question number three, who did God use to do it? God went to the smallest tribe, of, and he picked the least family within that tribe, and then he chose the youngest man in the least family of the smallest tribe. This man said, doesn't make much sense, but I'll do it, God. I'll do what you say. I'll follow you. I'll obey. When God needed somebody to step up, here was Gideon. Hey, I am nobody. I have no ability, uh, but I'll do what you tell me to do, God. It is a humbling but incredible truth that God wants to do great things with you despite your ability, despite your talents. Almost every time God has done something great, the people that he used were sometimes borderline ridiculous to get the job done. A giant defeated by a boy, a wall falls when people walk around it, uh, the two spies saved by a harlot, 132,000 defeated with 300, makes no sense. And that's where God works best. We serve an amazing God. Now that was all an introduction. Usually the introduction's about 5% of the whole message, just to give you an idea, maybe not today. But our friend of Jesus today is a man of obscurity. Uh, we read about him in the text that we read. Simon, he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. It's the ninth name in Luke's list of the apostles. James 
the son of Alphaeus. It's the only thing the Bible tells about uh, this man. The only thing we have in the Bible is just his name. If we ever, if he ever wrote anything, we don't know about it. If he ever asked Jesus any questions, it is not recorded. There's no record that he stood out at all from the group. In Mark 15, 40, his insignificance is emphasized when the Bible calls him James the Less. The Greek word for less is micros. Its primary meaning is a small in stature. So probably he was a short man. And short is defined as anything below 5'7", which is the perfect height, okay? And so uh, he was shorter than 5'7", is what we can assume from what the Bible says. So uh, we're probably talking about a man with a small stature. If you really literally translate what he's called James the Less, Little John is what really the name is for him. He was not the kind of person that stands out, never did. He was obscure. He even had a common name. There's several Jameses in the Bible, in the New Testament. We've talked about uh, James, the son of Zebedee already. There was another uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about him in Galatians 1.19. That's the James that became a leader in the New Testament, or the Jerusalem church, and he's the one that penned the book of James in the New Testament. But practically all we know about little James, or James the less, is he was the son of Alphaeus. That's all we know about him. Now, we've talked about in our study of Matthew before, it's very possible that they were brothers. Matthew also was the son of Alphaeus. His mother, Mary, was a devoted follower of Christ as well. She, she was an eyewitness to the crucifixion. She was one of the women who came to prepare Jesus' body in Mark 16.1. James seems to have been a small, quiet person who stayed mostly in the background. That would be consistent with the low profile that he had among the twelve. You could even say that what made him significant was his insignificance. Apparently, he sought no recognition. He displayed no great leadership. The Bible records no questions of his to Jesus. It does not highlight any unusual insight that he had. Only his name remains. His life and his labors are hidden in obscurity. But there are some things we do know about James the Less. We know he was one of the twelve. We don't know the story or how it happened, but we know that one day Jesus met him and chose him specifically to follow him. We know that Jesus trained him and worked with him for three and a half years, and we know that Jesus empowered him like he did the others. We know that Jesus sent him out as a witness. I don't have a doubt in my mind that this insignificant man was used by God in significant ways. I remind you of our three questions. Does God want to do great things? Yes, I believe he does. Can God do great things? Again, yes, I believe he can. And then who does he use to do it? I propose today that he uses people just like James the Less. And you and me. Only eternity will reveal the names and the testimonies of people like James the Less. People that this world does not remember. Nobody builds monuments for them. No books are written about them. No schools are named after them. I'm talking about people just like you and just like me and like James the Less. It's a great fact. We don't have to be somebody to do something for God. We don't have to be a, uh, be a person of big influence. When he picked the mother 
of his own son, God chose Mary, a nobody, a peasant woman. So I can't stand in front of you today and dispel much information about this man. I wish I could, but there's just simply not much known about him. There is some evidence that James the Less took the gospel uh, to Syria and to Persia, and accounts of his death depend, depending on who you read, you get all kinds of different accounts of his death. The three common ones are that he was stoned or that he was beaten to death or that others say he was crucified like Jesus was. But we can be confident that he became a powerful preacher like the others. It talks about them in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that he performed the signs of the apostle, apostles' wonders and mighty deeds. Yet there are no great works of his attributed in the Bible. There's nothing that records him as an important man. But may I remind you today, friends, what makes these men important is not who they are, but who they served and what they proclaimed. Can I tell you today, your legacy is not determined in what others will say about you. Your legacy is determined in what you do for God. And what is ever, what, what you do for eternity. Eternity will, will reveal the full truth of James the Less. I, as he's a guy I'd like to sit down and interview, wouldn't you? I mean, what happened? What gives? Tell me about yourself. He, he might have had an amazing life and we just, it's just not recorded for us. Eternity will reveal who you are as well. What's important for us to know is that he was chosen by Jesus. He was empowered by the Spirit and he was used by God to carry the gospel to a lost world. Little James, along with many of the others, disappears from the Bible narrative after Pentecost. The Bible does not give a biography of his life. One reason for this is that the Bible always keeps the focus on the power of God and on the word of God rather than on people. We're only the instruments of his power. The clay is not the hero of the sculpture. The potter is. And nobody epitomizes that truth better than James the Less, son of Alphaeus. He went mostly unnoticed through the entire gospel narrative. The world remembers next to nothing about him. But I remind you, he was there the day Jesus said these words in Mark 10, 29. Verily I say unto you, there is no man that had left his house or brother or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the Gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. Hey, that verse applied to James the less just as much as is applied to Peter and to John. The point I make today is that God uses obscure people. God wants to use you. He's not looking for gifted people. He's looking for willing people. The best abilities, you might say today, preacher, I have no abilities. God wants one ability, and that is availability. That's all he wants. That's the best ability you can have. Just be available. So let's ask the questions again. Does God want to do great things? I don't think there's a question about it. He's done it all the way since the beginning of time. He's done great things. Can God do great things? I think we have, uh, we have demonstrated today that absolutely he can. And then who does God use to do it? He uses ordinary, unexpected people like James the Less. And the final question I want to ask you today, the fourth question is one that you have to answer. Will you let him use you? 
let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. And that's the question we go out on today. We know He can. We know He wants to. But you got to be willing. You have to, oh, it's not about your talent. It's not about your ability. Listen, Gideon had no talent. He just let God use him. Rahab certainly didn't have any talents. She let God use her. And by the way, Rahab was in the line for Jesus Christ. She let God use her. How about you today? God wants to do great things. He uses obscure people to do it. And he wants you to use you. Would you stand along with me as she begins to play? If you're here today and maybe God's put his 